0: this is the permaculture podcast i'm scott mann this is the second conversation with sean chamberlain about the life and work of david fleming and how as the editor of lean logic and surviving the future sean is carrying on david's legacy during our conversation today we talk more about a variety of david's ideas while grounding them within sean's life and the work that he's currently doing to continue to share these ideas of how we can survive the future and create the world that we want to live in. Along the way, we touch on ideas like transition, informal versus formal education, and what we can do to slow our lives down, live with less financial capital, while still pursuing what it is that we love and are passionate about. So let's get on to this conversation with Sean as we begin more with his biography and background, and I'll join you again afterwards. Then, Sean, in our first conversation discussing the work of David Fleming, Lean Logic, and then your production of Surviving the Future, a shorter narrative version of that larger, more involved work. In this time around, I'd like to dig more into you and what you're doing, and how you're applying David's work in everything that's happening currently in the UK. And so I was wondering if you could give us a bit of your direct biography and background, how you came to transition and whether or not you've been involved in the permaculture side of things and we can take the conversation from there.
1: Yeah my background before all of this work was I was running a learning center for marginalized groups so I was working with drug misusers and people with mental health issues particularly young asylum seekers and yeah running a learning center so helping them to acquire the skills and qualifications that they were interested in but then in my spare time learning about uh, I don't know, the wider crisis of civilization and the feeling like here I am helping people reintegrate with society but it seems like society itself might be heading off a cliff so I feel like maybe that's what I want to engage with a bit more and yeah I was doing that mainly in my spare time and as I mentioned in our previous conversation I then found myself at Schumacher College which is where I first met Rob Hopkins and David Fleming. got very excited by both of their work, David's work and the transition movement which in many ways was being birthed out of David's work, with a lot of help from Rob and Ben Brangwyn and other people. And so I yeah, got very involved with both of those elements. And not long after that, there was some feedback going to the transition network from local transition groups who were saying they were starting to grapple with this idea of energy descent action planning their community over the coming decades. And they were saying, it's really hard, actually, because we know about our local resources and our local skills and our local needs. But if we're going to look 20 years into the future, we need to know more about the wider scale issues that might affect us, whether that's national policy decisions or whether that's peak oil and climate change in the world or whatever it may be. And so Transition Network was starting to look at could we provide some kind of piece of work that sort of could feed into local energy descent action plans and provide a bit of context for them. And Robin Ben's phoned me up, I guess, you know, I guess it was in 2007, to ask whether I'd like to undertake a piece of work around that and lead that and produce some kind of report maybe and uh, i did a lot of work on that and then went to the next transition conference and was sent away with another load of work to do and then went to the next transition and so by around the end of 2008 i had this huge sort of piece of work and we realized the problem is nobody really reads long reports (laughs) even if they're exactly what they're looking for and just around this time rob's book the transition handbook came out in 2008 and was a huge success i remember it was in the top ten books that members of the UK Parliament were taking with them on holiday to read, it was, really had an impact at many levels. And Green Books, who were publishing the books at the time, Rob was speaking to them and said, do you have any great ideas about how we could present this work that Sean's done in a really accessible way? I said, yeah. it's basically another book. And rather to my surprise, I remember Rob rang me up one day and said, Sean, how do you feel about writing a book? And I said, honestly, Rob, I'm exhausted after the work I've just been doing. I really think I need a bit of a rest. And he said, no, you don't understand. You've already written it. <laughs> and so then I sort of had to do a bit of work rewriting it into book format, as it were, and doing the book tour, et cetera, and actually realised what I'm re-realising again now, which is that the work of producing the initial manuscript is, a, you know, only a relatively small proportion of the work of actually publishing a book. And uh, And obviously, so, yeah. That second transition book, The Transition Timeline, came out in 2009. And that's alongside working with David Fleming very closely on his work around tradable energy quotas, which is a sort of carbon rationing scheme, which the UK government got very excited about and did a feasibility study on. And I worked very closely with David on all of that. And then I also, around this time, met Mark Boyle, who's known more commonly as the Moneyless Man, So we met at the first Dark Mountain Festival where he was promoting his first book, The Moneyless Man, and I was promoting my transition book. We became best friends pretty well instantly because I'm very interested in this sort of gift economy work and obviously he was taking that very literally. He lived for... His initial plan was to live for a year without money and write a book about it down near Bristol in southwest UK. And he did that. But then I met him just as he was promoting that book and he actually decided, you know what, I've never been happier in my life, so he was just going to carry on. But when we were talking, I was fascinated by what he was doing, but we were both agreeing that it isn't really sustainable on an individual level because eventually you're going to get sick or injured or whatever and you need some kind of community around that. And so with his sort of background of doing it on a practical level and my background of community activism, we started looking together at whether we could create some kind of moneyless community. And obviously the big barrier to that is finding land to do it on very much based around permaculture principles in terms of supplying the needs of the people there. And so then we heard about a fledgling group called the Ecological Land Cooperative, which was just being put together with a view to providing an access route to land for people who wanted to do ecologically minded projects. So we got in touch with them and they were just holding an application process for residents for their first piece of land. And we applied and we were selected and... I then got quite involved with the co-op, joined the board of the co-op as we went through a a sort of two to three year planning process. I, I believe it's not quite so arduous in America, but over here, there are two real barriers to getting hold of land. And one is the price of land, which I'm sure also applies over there. But the other is the planning permission process. So it's actually very hard to get any kind of permission to build on land in the UK unless you're very wealthy or running a supermarket or something. And so, yeah, we, working with some real experts on planning applications, went through a two- or three-year process of getting permission for dwellings on this land, which we eventually succeeded in, and it was 22 acres of land divided into three plots, and Mark and I were taking on one of these plots. But just at the point where we finally won permission, Mark had a sort of change of heart. He left Ireland, which is where he's from, when he was 16, and he just suddenly started feeling... There was a lot of elements to this, but for part, a big part of it for him was the feeling of, if I settle in the UK now, I'm probably only going to see my parents maybe once a year for the rest of their lives, and I didn't really get to know them as an adult. And there was this big financial crisis in, in Ireland at the time, which meant that land was particularly cheap there. And He felt, he, he just in the end, it was a real heart-wrenching decision for him, but in the end he decided to move back to Ireland and basically do what we'd been looking at doing together there. And that's going very well, incidentally. I was there a couple of months ago, and it's a wonderful project called The the Happy Pig. It being Ireland, he set up a mindless pub, which is a brilliant concept based around homebrew, etc. But for me at the time, it was a huge blow because this was going to be my home and that we'd been working on for years. And so at the time, I thought maybe I should try and make this work and I put a call out for other people to join the project because I didn't really at that point have the land-based experience that Mark had and so our sort of agreement informally had been I will take the lead on getting us through the planning and everything and then once we're on the land Mark would take the lead and so I put a call out for other people who might like to join and found a few wonderful people who did come down and join but long story short I it was a bit too much to take on and I really burned myself out with that and I think it's quite a different thing to be undertaking a project with three wonderful strangers than doing it with your best friend who you've been plotting it with for many years and so in the end came to the realization that this really wasn't working with my eco land co-op board hat on felt actually I'm no longer sure that Sean's the right resident for this piece of land and so step back from that we have another family who moved onto the land and replaced me there and the others who'd moved down and, and so the land co-op as a whole is going from strength to strength that site is doing really well it's called Greenham Reach down in southwest England the co-op's just taken on a second site down in in Sussex which is central south England and looking at taking on a third site so it's producing, providing a real model for people to access land to do wonderful projects very commonly involving permaculture and by this time I was chairing the co-op so I'm very proud of having played a role in birthing all of that but after all of that I stepped back around two years ago from active day-to-day involvement with the co-op and really then focused my energies on on david fleming's work which i was very aware hadn't found its publication by this point and yeah it was around this time when when chelsea green discovered lean logic extract in the dark mountain journal and got in touch about publication and the last two or three years since then have been lean logic and surviving the future have been my my sort of core work if you like although i'm still very involved with the co-op and with transition and all of my work goes onto this banner of Dark Optimism, which is my website, because I find bright, shiny optimism to be a bit frustrating because I'm like, well, everything isn't fine, actually. But at the same time, I think, you know, even in a world of great crisis and challenge, there are still good stories to tell with our lives. And and that sort of inherent optimism in our ability to not just minimise our impact on the world, but have a positive impact on the world is yeah, is where my Dark Optimism name came from. So that's probably a brief overview of, what I've been up to as brief as it could be
0: (laughs) no that's fine and it's funny because I'm looking at the cover of the transition timeline and I realize that I've browsed it before but I didn't realize because of how close the format and cover is to the transition handbook that it wasn't Rob Hopkins and I feel horrible saying that in the moment (laughs) because it's such a perfect continuity to what was already there
1: well obviously Rob and I were working pretty closely together and there is actually one chapter in there that that Rob did write, which is flagged as such. But I take that as a huge compliment. I think Rob's an incredible writer. And yeah, if you thought Rob wrote it, that's, I'll take that for sure.
0: And did you have any formal training or background in editing and organizing and these other things before you came to just do the
1: work? No, I wouldn't say so. I'm actually, I would say I'm not a huge fan of formal education, actually. one of One of my few regrets in life is finishing my degree. I... After two years of studying philosophy at York University I thought this isn't that exciting really and I could learn a lot more doing this independently and I had a long chat with my tutor about quitting and he convinced me to stay on but it feels like I could have done a lot more interesting things with that year and uh, and since then I remember them trying to convince me to do a master's and I had absolutely no interest in staying in academia and uh, and no I've always had a real affinity for words definitely I've always had a love for reading and etymology and all of that so no i seem to have some sort of natural knack for it and i haven't really undertaken any formal training i've done some training in you mentioned organizing community organizing is something that i have done some sort of facilitation training and there's an amazing group called eco dharma who do work around working effectively as groups and that's something i've certainly learned from some people in a sort of formal teaching environment but but no essentially i'm a big fan of getting on and doing things. Rob has this lovely saying, he says, life is a series of things you're not quite ready for yet. And uh, I've always thought that's quite quite a reassuring thought when you're thinking, what on earth am I doing? What am I? What, what have I taken on here? Do I really know what I'm doing? And you just think, ah, it's OK. That's how life works. And yeah, it seems to be, seems to have, uh, I'm incredibly happy with how, particularly the last 10 years since that Schumacher course, I feel like I, I couldn't be happier with what I've spent my time doing. And actually this concept of not quite moneylessness, but living extremely cheaply. This is one of the things Ben, Mark Boyle and I really bonded on when we first met is that's been the key to spending all this time doing things I'm so passionate about is I live very cheaply. I live on, I guess, four or five thousand pounds a year. And that allows me to spend all my time doing stuff I'm passionate about, which is very often not paid. But if you're not spending lots of money, you don't have to worry about earning lots of money. And that allows you to follow your passions. So that's been a that's been an absolute key for me in being able to pursue all these things. And yeah, what can you buy that's better than spending all your time doing stuff you're passionate about, really?
0: And it's interesting because the figure that you mention, I've been running the podcast and living my life on around $10,000 a year.
1: Which is probably about the same amount of money, actually. I don't know, the exchange rate has just massively changed, of course, but that's a whole other story.
0: And it is interesting. And one of the things that I talk with people about often, because they ask, how do I do all this? Because of the American lifestyle being what it is. And it's, I've had to live my life very intentionally in order to do this. That it is about making decisions about, is this really where I want to spend my money?
1: And that's, that's one of the key drivers for me behind putting so much time and effort into the land cooperative as well. Because for me, one of the great injustices of our time is that people have to spend so much money on rent or mortgage or whatever it is just to have a place to exist that it automatically ties you into the market economy because you then have to raise the money to do that and so much of david fleming's work is about this informal economy and being a key secret for me is staying with friends staying with family and relying on the informal economy rather than monetary economy to give me a place to to rest my head has been core and it's, it's funny people have described it to me as their form of offsetting they say I don't feel great about some of the aspects of society in my life, but by giving you a place to lay your head for free, that allows you to get on with some activism offsetting on my behalf. So yeah, their form of offsetting is giving me a couch for the night.
0: And it's interesting for me because I live in a transient way right now, moving between different sites and things, just to be able to make this kind of work.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, very familiar to me, for sure. And that's why the Land Co-op has been all about providing a space where people can access land cheaply. And certainly the idea of, of Mark and I, we had a, a multi-page non-business plan for our moneyless community. And one of the core concepts there is, if I can't remember who said it, someone said brilliantly once, only human beings could invent money and then pretend they'd run out. And this idea that we're trained into in our culture, that money is what you need to get by. When of course permaculturists know all too well that nature gives in abundance you let it really a big part of our thinking was if we can provide somewhere that lives in that sense of natural abundance then people who come can stay and eat and drink and for free and it's really I remember when I first met Mark and I went down to stay with him for I'm not sure maybe only a week or so and it was just a lovely experience and then I remember when I left I went to the local train station and the experience of oh wait I have to pay money to buy my ticket to get on the train it was it was surprising how uncomfortable that felt, how almost dirty it felt in a funny sort of way, even after just a week of living in a place where money was just not an issue at all. And you, it was actually scary how surprising it was to realise how strange it was to live without money, to realise, oh, all these things like conversations, actually we don't pay for them, but you get so easily into the mindset that you have to pay for everything, that it's almost easy to forget that the informal economy is still absolutely the core of society. We'd be horrified if you know, if our parents came around for dinner and we tried to bill them for it afterwards or something. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, as I say, that's been a real driver for me, is finding ways to enable more and more people to escape from the clutches of the market economy. The etymology of mortgage is fascinating. You probably know mortgage, the etymology of that is death grip, <laughs> which I think is wonderfully explicit. But unfortunately, that's our birthright very often, whether it's in the form of rent or mortgage. So finding ways to free people from that and allow them to unleash their brilliance is something I'm quite passionate about. My passion probably shows.
0: It does. And I really, I appreciate that because it was one of those things for me, I quested for so long, I was searching for something big enough to work within. And it's one of the things that I love about permaculture and doing this podcast is that originally it started as just a way to write my post-PDC education, initially by writing short pieces and things to release, to wrap my brain around this information and do some additional research and reading. And then after taking a break and finding out that my audience had quadrupled in the time that I had been gone, started doing these interviews and it's become more about listening to the stories of others and getting to draw that out of them and to try to connect in a way that we can really hear those passions because my life is my story your life is your story we all have a story to share so why not sit down and tell them
1: oh absolutely yeah it's a pleasure to do absolutely how long have you been podcasting for
0: this month is my six-year anniversary
1: all right nice well it's an honor to be here then thank you (laughs) yeah it's something like
0: 400 episodes in the can Actually, maybe more than that now. That was the last time I did a count when I was approaching that. So,
1: yeah. Someone will be doing a PhD on your podcast before you that. Could be.
0: And, and that mention of a PhD, your education, it's one of the things that I was wondering about because here in the United States, formal education is very often a shortcut to legitimacy. Unless you've been doing something for 20 or 30 years, have written some books and are recognized as an expert, it can be really hard to bring about change. But if you walk into meeting and you can say i have an accredited degree from this organization on this topic that's why you should listen to me it's like an immediate response it's okay what do you have to share with us and that was one of the reasons why i took my education in the direction it did i was working with a career counselor at the time because of trying to figure out where to take the show and that was one of her suggestions she's like look in the united states this is what you need to do Yeah, it's going to cost you some money, but you find the right program, you can do it inexpensive, relatively speaking, and it jump-starts what it is that you're doing. But it seems, though, that in the UK, I keep hearing these stories of folks who are just able to do it. You were talking about authoring parliamentary papers with David.
1: I think it is an issue, definitely, and it's something I've been aware of. She was a big surprise for me. As I mentioned, my my transition book... uh, wrote by accident, if you like. You know, I thought I was writing a report and then it became a book. But it was, quite a, it was quite a revelation that after I published it, suddenly I'd be getting all sorts of invitations to speak on the basis of being an author. Whereas if it had been a report, nobody would have invited me to speak as the bloke who wrote that report. And you know, I think that was actually quite a turning point in terms of this credibility thing that you're talking about. Having written a book and a book that someone had felt was worth publishing gives you a certain level of credibility and then of course in a way i was quite lucky to be part of the kind of early days of transition which then itself by association gave me a certain credibility because within certain audiences people have heard of transition and so they're interested in me because of my relationship with that and then similarly david fleming hooking up with him so he he had already published some work on this tradable energy quota scheme and that was getting a certain amount of attention in academia and then just about when I met him it got went a bit stratospheric because David Miliband who was our Secretary of State for the Environment at the time got really excited about the idea and decided to do government funded feasibility study into the work and so David being the originator obviously was involved in all of that and me as his partner in crime was editing his work and working with him very closely on it and yeah came around to this work. In fact the The co-authoring thing was a kind of combination of the two that David was very impressed with my transition book and in particular the work around peak oil and climate change in there. He invited me to co-author on this report with him. And so, yeah, again, that then having co-authored that report gave me a little bit more credibility. And so it is something that I've pieced together bit by bit. And then, of course, as that work was covered in the media when I'm able to say oh well, if you look at this article in time magazine about my work then again that's something that creates a certain sense of interest in what I'm doing and so I suppose I've taken a patchwork approach to building credibility rather than trying to do it through through a qualification but it it has been bits here and I do think the money thing is a huge thing as well the fact that I could maybe you could argue that I was just really lucky that At the point where I was interested in this stuff, I hooked up with the early days of transition and everything else. But I would say more like it is the fact that... So what I actually did was, when I left that job managing the learning centre, I was talking to people and people were suggesting, oh, you should get involved with an NGO, work for Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth or something. And I looked at what they were doing and I thought, eh, that doesn't really excite me at all. And so that was the point where I went, okay, what would it be like if I didn't have a wage? thought that through and learnt to live very cheaply and basically I'd saved some money while I was while I was doing a proper job. And so I was able to live off that for what ended up being about a year while I just cast around looking for exciting things and reading a lot and hanging around on websites like Energy Bulletin at the time, which is now resilience.org. And it was through all of that and through reading a lot of Dross and some gems that I discovered Transition. And so I tend to think if you can create that time and that space in your life to engage with the things that really excite you then there's a good chance they're going to excite other people too and that was probably in many ways. As I say the Schumacher course 10 years ago was definitely in many ways the place where I discovered my peer group and all of my whatever credibility I might have has flowed from that. I do still get people trolling me sometimes like people who you know don't agree with where I'm coming from saying who is this guy? He's got a degree in philosophy and he's here talking to us about carbon rationing and he's not trained in economics and Who the hell are you? But I don't get a lot of it. It doesn't really bother me particularly. I just sit down and actually talk with economists perfectly happily because I think formal education is often, in my experience, and I'm sure people have had other experiences, but in my experience, it's very often a very slow way of learning something. Whereas if you're actually very passionate about something and you hook up with an amazing mentor like David Fleming, I would say to him, like, how do I get a grip on economics? And he'd say, what is economics really? It's about who does what and who gets what ultimately and all the questions that flow from that. And I thought, OK. And, just, and then he would say, oh, go and read this book and go and read that book. And that was a far more, for me anyway, that's far more engaging to do this kind of self-directed learning and read a book because you just really want to read it and you really want to know what it says rather than because it's on your reading list or you've got to write 3,000 words about it or whatever else. I found that a very frustrating experience. But when you're motivated by the desire... And in fact, the entry on education in Lean Logic makes a very similar case, actually, now I think about it. If you're if you're driven by your passion to know about something and to make something happen, then any resources that you find, you, you're going to use. Whereas if someone just throws a bunch of resources at you and says, get on with it, it you don't have the motivation. It's the motivation that's the key thing in, in learning, I think. And once you actually get into the conversation and someone finds that you're worth talking to, then they don't really care what your qualifications were anymore. All they ever are, as you were saying at the start, is a way of getting your foot in the door, really. So if there's a way of getting your foot in the door that doesn't involve what, to my mind, would feel like a lot of wasted time going through a formal education process, then I'll take it. <laughs> but I'm sure, you know, some people, I mean, if you find a great teacher in a great course, it can be a wonderful thing. In my two weeks at Schumacher College were, in a sense, formal education. I signed up and paid for a course of education there, and it was absolutely the most life-changing experience of my life. That can obviously exist and be a good thing, and you know, PDCs are, in a sense, formal education. But I think a lot of mainstream formal education is about educating people to fit into a system which I have no desire to fit into. And that is probably why I felt so so frustrated during, during my degree.
0: I can appreciate that feeling because that was one of the things I was originally studying computer science in the mid-90s. And while I was studying that, I was involved in internships over my summer and winter breaks that were paying me a very livable wage mostly on the knowledge that I was learning on the job as opposed to what I was necessarily engaged in in my coursework. Though I do have to say that the piece of it that's interesting for me was that there was that feeling of being part of the system and I've heard this idea that now a four-year undergraduate degree is part of this K through 16 program that we're no longer K through 12 because of how many jobs are requiring.
1: What's this K through? I'm not familiar with that terminology.
0: In the United States, our primary education before you go to college is K through 12. So kindergarten through your senior year, there's this extension then the idea that your undergraduate degree, your bachelor's degree is four more years of education. So it fits into this K through 16 model because of how required they are. And it was only in attending grad school that I no longer felt like I was being pushed into a box to learn what my instructors were trying to force upon me within that setting and that it was very much about what do i know what do i want to learn and how can i tailor the program to my own education and that's where i really like what's emerging within the permaculture community is that we're talking about new ways to offer the pdc what are different areas of focus that we can include in this as we start to move permaculture further and further from the landscape and talk more about social systems community building economics And it was a conversation with Penny Livingston-Stark, who's a member of the Permaculture Institute of North America, that really, like, the core of permaculture can be taught in a couple of days. The strategies, the techniques, the ethics, the underlying philosophy. And then it's, how do we fill that out then to reach the 72 hours? And it's just being able to include more about transition or some of these other things from Surviving the Future or Lean Logic. One of the things that I commonly think about that's, like... The tagline for the podcast is about creating the world that we want to live in. And with all this work that you've done with the transition timeline, with bringing Lean Logic and surviving the future into the world, especially now that David has been gone for almost six
1: years? Yep, coming up to the sixth anniversary, yep.
0: Where do you see your role in all of this and with things happening in the UK with the Brexit vote and the impact that could have, where do you see your work within the umbrella of transition and permaculture and Lean Logic taking you?
1: I don't know, is the short answer. So one thing I haven't mentioned, which is quite a huge thing for me on a personal level, is that three weeks after David Fleming died very suddenly, my, my fiancé died very suddenly, Maria. And that was obviously a huge moment in my life that month to lose basically the my sort of partner in crime on a work level if you like David Fleming who I was very actively collaborating with daily and my sort of romantic partner really knocked me for six and then having to go straight into getting this parliamentary report finished without David and doing justice to that and really yeah that experience of grief has been a huge part of my last yeah coming up for six years and a friend said something to me that was incredibly helpful and a lot of people utter a lot of platitudes but he said the best way that you can honor people that you love after they die is to keep alive what was best in their lives in the world through your own life and so i've done that in various ways for maria and with david it was very clear to me that the obvious way to do that was to uh, to get his book out there and in many ways and while I've been involved with many wonderful things over the last six years, this sort of feels like the closing of a chapter for me. I suspect, given the glowing reception that Lean Logic and in the Future are having so far, that I'm going to be doing quite a lot of talking about them, which is wonderful, because Lean Logic is one of my two favourite books of all time, so it feels a real honour to be affiliated with it in such a strong way. But, yeah, it does feel like seeing these books published now, and I would think that over the next month or two... Things will die down a bit around the the launch of these books, uh, although I am teaching a week-long course at Schumacher College in February on David's work, which should be, should be fascinating, with Mark Boyle and Rob Hopkins, actually. But, yeah, this feels like a sort of, OK, sort of six years on, I've done the things that I felt I wanted to do to one of them both, and really it's time to take a deep breath, and I've very deliberately not agreed to various very interesting projects that like I could have taken on for... next period of time and i'm quite determined to have a bit of a restful time really or a reflective time i think my life generally has has bounced between two states i have a reflective period where i read a lot and think a lot and don't really say a lot or write a lot and kind of reflect on things and see what's out there and see what might be exciting going on in the world that i might want to support and get involved with and then inevitably i find something i want to support and get involved with and i get involved with it and i throw myself into that wholeheartedly for however long that goes on for and I feel quite overdue for one of those sort of reflective periods what another friend of mine called the fertile void where you don't really know what's going to take up your time but you're open to things coming in and I think on a personal level I'm not sure where I'm going to base myself or who with on a sort of work level I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing and right now that feels great actually that feels really like exactly what I need and it's been, a, for various reasons, it's been a pretty relentless few years and some of the various things that I've talked about. So yeah, I'm very keen to just create that fertile void, not have too many plans. I do now have a part-time role with Chelsea Green Publishing, which has come out of these books. So they're the publishers for David Fleming's books, and working with them on that, particularly talking about the promotion of the books, they got more of a sense of me and the connections that I've got over here, and so they've offered me this role of, as a commissioning editor for the UK and Europe, so hooking up some of the wonderful activists and writers that I know with Chelsea Green as a publisher because we had two really good ecological publishers in this country called Green Books and Earthscan, Green Books who originally published the transition books, including mine, and they've both been taken over by corporates, unfortunately, and um, aren't what they used to be. And so Chelsea Green are aware of that and we're interested in providing a publisher for some of this work over here and they were keen for me to do that full-time but I said no I really need to hold this space open but it's a role that feels great for me so I'm doing that a couple of days a week just bored because it's the first time I've had a regular income in about 10 years it's a very strange feeling actually and genuinely one of the things I really need to reflect on is how I relate to that it's it's actually quite uncomfortable in a way that I hadn't expected at all but yeah so I'm quite happy with that a couple of days a week of that work which I really enjoy and fits really well with what I do anyway and fits really well with a kind of reflective period of, of doing a lot more reading and stuff as well. Apart from that, I'm quite committed to just slowing down and letting the next chapter find me when it's ready.
0: As I mentioned, this is my seventh year of the podcast and I'm in a similar place of reflection and slowing down.
1: It's really important.
0: Yeah. And it's part of this for me comes from originally it was a TED talk that I saw about an organization that shuts down every seventh year. And they just take the entire year off because the owner of the company decided that he would rather give his employees this time throughout their life than to have them try to tack it all on at the end. And then it was talking with some friends of mine about Judaism and earth care, this idea of renewal. And we have within those traditions one day a week, that is the Sabbath, but then there's also this idea that I'm not super familiar with, but like the Shemitah year, the seventh year, to let the lands go fallow and to give not only ourselves, but also the earth a rest. And yeah, as I was going through some of this decision making for where the show would go in this year, because of some of the questions that have been raised about what it's been like to live in the gift economy and some other things, someone who I've traded messages with brought this idea of sabbatical back up and it really felt like the right time to do it. So I wish you all your luck in slowing down.
1: Yeah, thanks. The meme that went around not that long ago, which I loved, which was just stop the glorification of busy. I'm so up for that. I had this wonderful experience actually when I, because as I mentioned before, I ended up quite burned out after the whole experience of Mark pulling out of our land project and trying to keep that going without him. And this place, Eco Dharma, is in in the Pyrenees, the mountains in Spain, in the Catalan region of the Pyrenees. And it's an incredible base where they run a 10-day retreat called Sustaining Resistance and Empowering Renewal. And it's a kind of retreat for activists around burnout and sustaining ourselves. And it was a really life-changing experience for me, probably two years ago now. And uh, I've changed some really deep patterns in how I relate to to work and indeed relationships in general. And uh, one of the things that really struck me is after I came back from there, I was really having to actively work on these new habits in myself. And one fellow activist asked me to help with an event she was organising, And I said, you know what, I'm going to say no to that because I feel like I'm as busy as I want to be right now. And it's not that I couldn't do that, but I'm just trying not to make that the bar as to whether I say yes to something, whether I could possibly do it. And I expected her to be quite disappointed and maybe a bit resentful that she was working really hard. And actually, she turned around to me and she said, thank you so much. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I really needed someone to model that for me. And that's happened several times since. And I've, I think it's something that we really struggle with. And I think as well, like for me, on a personal level, I was very involved with climate change and getting quite deeply embedded in climate science and working with scientists. And as you might know from the transition timeline, that has a sort of popular translation of climate science section in it that I work quite hard on. And I really felt the urgency of that. I thought, you know, wow, this is our kind of one chance to really make the hugest impact on the shape of the future. And that really drove me pretty hard, that sense of, wow, probably earlier generations didn't really understand what was happening and future generations it's going to be too late to do anything and this is the core moment for this huge decision. And now I feel like actually it was and we blew it, to be honest. I feel like it doesn't really look like we are going to head off runaway climate change unless there's some huge collapse scenario and in a weird sort of way, that's taken a bit of the edge off the urgency for me. I sort of feel like running even harder now doesn't quite seem to make sense. And it seems like if I carried on doing the things, I suppose for quite a long time, it's only really made sense to me to work on things that seem helpful, both in a kind of great turning scenario and in a actually society just plows headlong off the cliff scenario. And things like Transition and David Fleming's work and the Land Co-op, to me, they make perfect sense, regardless of how we predict the future. Our job is not to... You know, if I was born into a scenario where there are huge, kind of terrible things going on in the world which I can't actually change, I'm not going to beat myself up too much about that, but I am going to get on with trying to make the world a better place in whatever way I can. So, yeah, it, I just on every level of myself, slowing down feels like the appropriate course of action right now.
0: And I was going to ask you about where you see Lean Logic in David's work taking us, but I feel that you answered that in your personal response of this.
1: Yeah, I think David, there's a wonderful entry, which actually is quite a short one. I could even read it. His entry on success, I think, is, is amazing. He says, do you really think we will get through all this and come in due course to a time of resilience, manners and harmonic order? Don't answer that question you may discover to your cost that your answer is either a self-fulfilling or a self-denying truth and that both count against us. If we deny that there is a livable future then we will do little to secure one. If we affirm it we come into other troubles such as complacency, an optimistic view that what we are doing now is all that is needed, an iconic focus on the simple solution or the constant anxiety of life on the edge between hope and doubt. Positive thinking seems to be the right thing in the circumstances until you notice the wreckage. Instead, think of what happened to Orpheus and Eurydice. Eurydice, you may remember, died after having been bitten by a snake, and Orpheus went down into the underworld to recover her. The goddess Persephone agreed to let her go, on condition that Orpheus did not look back at her as she followed him. Unfortunately, he forgot about this condition. He did look back, with the result that Eurydice vanished forever, and Orpheus was torn to pieces by angry women who threw his head into the river Hebros. Where it floated downstream still singing that is make the intense commitment at walking pace plod on climb steeply uphill out of the underworld keep your eyes fixed ahead you never know you might get there you might even find out where there is and you might inspire others to come with you just don't look back we do not need to choose between hope and expectation What matters is to keep hope alive, which we won't succeed in doing if we are constantly checking up on it. It is not certainty that sustains our focus, but the ambiguity that comes to us, for instance, in the prayer from another ancient moment of commitment against the odds, quote, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And I think that says it all, really. I think David emphasises throughout that there's no need to agree on the shape of what the future is going to look like. And someone told me when I was working on the transition book, actually, the one thing we can be sure about in the future is that it won't be what we expect and what matters is plodding on. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier about Brexit and that's something which has actually come up a huge amount during the book tour that I'm currently in the middle of or towards the end of, because I think that for me, I, I found Brexit an interesting thing, actually the vote. Brexit itself, of course, hasn't happened and possibly may not even happen. But in terms of the vote, it was the first thing I'd been asked to vote on as a member of the electorate. I didn't seem pretty clear to me what I was, which way I was going to vote, or indeed whether I was going to vote, because I've never felt any sense at all that I could bring myself to vote for either of the main parties here. And so I've always voted Green, not because I think voting's actually a particularly important thing that we just spend too much time worrying about, but I'm willing to spend a few minutes posting out a vote for the people that I know within the Green Party who are doing really great work and then I get on with what I'm doing for a better world but Brexit I wasn't clear from a transition point of view i thought I'm up for relocalizing and bringing control back to as close to the local level as possible on the one hand and I look at some of the things the EU's doing like some of the trade deals and things and I think well, that's despicable and I want nothing to do with it on the other hand, I look at British politics and it's probably more poisonous than European politics. So I thought, well, actually, if I vote in, if I vote remain, then I almost do it with an apology to the rest of Europe for inflicting us on them. But yeah, I found it a very sort of confusing thing, which is why I've been a bit fed up with the media, the mainstream media here, which has been very poisonous and sort of name-throwing back and forth, like saying really commonly in the left-wing press that anyone who voted out was either a complete idiot or a racist, which I just don't find to be true at all. I know lots of people who voted out for perfectly respectable reasons, and as I say, it wasn't clear myself which way to vote. But I found obviously being completely immersed in David's work at the time that all the Brexit debate was happening. I actually found it speaks to it really clearly which is interesting when he he died five years before brexit was ever a thing and he writes in particular i think a lot about i mentioned i think in our previous conversation about how his work seems to speak equally to self-identifying right wing and left wing individuals and i i think one thing that's spoken a lot to the leave vote has been his work on identity he talks about how a nation is a root for identity built through long association with a particular place and a culture which you know, many generations of our forefathers and foremothers have shaped and defended. And, and even how if a nation is defeated, eventually it very often manages to come back into being with this sense of, of renewal and justice, that it has some kind of existence in the minds of its people and it, it gives an identifiable meaning to this sense of we, the idea of a national interest and one of the one of the things i found confusing was that we've also had a big debate going on for several years about scottish independence from the rest of the uk and the majority of environmentally minded left-wing people seem to be very clear that scotland should leave the uk but the uk should not leave the european union and i've been quite interested in why that is and i've talked to some people about that and not really got that clear answers but One of the attendees at our book launch event in Oxford was an English woman who lived in Scotland, and she was saying it's been really striking to her how different the Scottish sense of we is from the British sense of we, and that the Scottish sense of we is much more inclusive and much more friendly. And we've had the Scottish Prime Minister talking very openly about her disgust with the British government's approach to immigration, and she's been saying how... Absolutely, they regard their immigrant population as being Scottish, and that in fact all all Scots were immigrants. Just, and in particular in America, of course, all Americans were immigrants. And so, well, apart from the natives, and this sense of we and what it means, I think has been absolutely core. And David's work speaks really powerfully to that sense of community identity and national identity, indeed, as being a really important concept which i think i'm not sure how familiar you are with british politics we've got this uk independence party which is a sort of verges on soft racism fascist kind of positions and yet has had a real huge number of people voting in support of them and i think part of that is because they're the only people who are articulating a lot of these ideas that people do resonate with about their collective identity and this is one reason I'm so proud to have been involved with David Fleming's books, because I think more than just a route to understanding the causes of the majority vote, I think Fleming's work lays out a really progressive, practical vision of actually what a positive Brexit could look like. know, if we are going down the Brexit route, I think we need to reclaim that from the kind of xenophobia and racism that sees that as a vindication. I think that all the, we've had a lot of surprising election results, whether that's you know, Trump coming through as the Republican candidate in the US or Corbyn being selected, a very left wing candidate being selected as the leader of the UK Labour Party, or of course Brexit itself. And I think maybe the common factor behind all of these is this rejection of the status quo. And the fact that the kind of globalised, neoliberal market economy that David Rails against is not just destroying our collective future but also destroying the present for an awful lot of people grinding people into the dirt right now under this banner with i don't know whether this has crossed the atlantic but this banner of austerity that we have here which a lot of people characterize as sort of neo-feudalism where the government's just relinquishing all responsibility for taking care of anybody and but i what i find Exciting in David's vision is that while a lot of people are worried about the potential increase of of sort of fascist thinking It's really important to remember that People like Mussolini and Hitler. They didn't only consolidate their power on the basis of lies and of fear and of othering But they also raised wages and they addressed unemployment and they improved working conditions and so I think it's really important if we're going to avoid that kind of response to the desperation that a lot of people feel here, then we need an alternative vision, a beautiful story of how we're going to make the future better for the desperate rather than that sort of quite despicable one. And for me, that's what David Fleming's books offer. This economics based in in trust and in loyalty and in local diversity, I think is a much healthier thing for the dissatisfaction with today to gravitate towards than that sort of fearful fascist kind of vision of well we'll look after ourselves and we'll look after you and sod the rest of you and so i think to be part of helping this sort of realistic alternative economics reach the world at this particular moment when i think we're desperately in need of it because i think all belief in the current paradigm is draining away very quickly yeah again it's an honor really
0: and I have a page full of notes that I could continue asking you questions on because of where this conversation has gone and some of the things that you mentioned just now could be an entirely other line of discussion.
1: Uh, Scott, maybe we'll have to talk again someday.
0: Well, I'd be more than happy to leave the floor open anytime you're available to do that because it's fascinating to get these cultural distinctions because one of my early permaculture clients, someone who I care for very much because of the lessons that we learned from each other and because of the ongoing support that they provided to me through conversation and some of our email exchanges. We were having a conversation about politics and our views were very diametrically opposed to one another. But as we really started talking about the things that we cared about, we realized that it was just the way that the rhetoric was couched within our political climate that caused us to feel so divided when we really got down to the root of everything, we realized that 99% of what we cared about we actually had in common. And that was the place where we really became human for one another and have been able to have some great conversations about family and everything else that we care about. And we've got to a point where we can agree to disagree. And I think there may be a reference to this in Lean Logic about how this idea of arguing to win is really a relatively recent idea, that throughout our cultural history, that we would get together and, I like that idea that you mentioned about getting drunk to consider something, we would get together and have some kind of a festival, and to drink and to share food with one another, to break bread, and to have these really hard conversations, but at the end of the day, we were still members of the same community. We might disagree, but it was in the space between the disagreement that we found understanding.
1: Yeah, it's, it's in his entry on a shifting ground. Is that and and yeah, absolutely, you're right. And I think that's one of the things that comes out in his work is this sense that it's through the difficult times that we learn what it is to need each other. There's a lovely line in his entry on indignation where he says, you know, "Being an indignant is an urban emotion because." You can be indignant in the city, in the country, because you're not gonna you're not gonna need to borrow the guy's horse next week. And yeah, if you are if you're involved in a true community of people who need each other and rely on each other, then yeah, maybe you fall out, but then you make it up because you have to. And that's where, in a way, relationships can become a lot more interesting. Because if you're all tiptoeing around each other, because you know that if someone doesn't like me very much, they're just gonna go and hang out with someone else instead, then in some way, relationships can't get that deep. And I mean, in some ways, I think that's one of the challenges of transition is that it's often trying to create a sense of community every Thursday at 7 o'clock when, in fact, true community is based on something much deeper than that in the same way that true family is. It's, it's based on actually relying on each other for something that you can't get anywhere else. And that, as you say, it does allow for... In the same way, one of my favourite entries in Logic is about the public sphere and the private sphere and the relationship between them. And he talks a lot about how... Within, as we know, with our family, we can enjoy a lot of things that we can't enjoy anywhere else. But we can also be a a lot more rowdy and difficult than we would dream of being anywhere else as well. And that's a real thing. And that's an important thing. And it does allow for a deepening of relationship. Because then when you go out into the world together with someone that you've seen every side of them, there's a real loyalty there. Because you feel like you know this person in a way that you don't when you're being polite if I'm not betraying my English heritage by criticising politeness.
0: (laughs) I really appreciate that because I come from a large family. I was one of 18 cousins. My mother was one of 12 children. And so we would get together at my grandmother's house and there'd be 70 to 100 people who I was related to. And of course, there was we'd be getting into rows and things like that. But 15 minutes later, we're just sitting next to the campfire, playing music together, telling stories again. And it really gave us that kind of exposure. And there's something that comes from the restorative justice movement about the idea that everyone is worth more than their worst decision. I think sometimes that gets lost, that it's easy to judge people based on their intent as opposed to their actions and to just bring compassion and understanding to the table. But I'm sure that's, (laughs) that would be another conversation we could have about building community and culture.
1: Yeah. I think we've lined up our next five conversations with, Got our subject matter sorted now. Yeah, I think so.
0: (laughs) But, so I don't take up any more of your time because we've run over much longer than we'd originally planned with either conversation.
1: The joys of the informal economy, yeah?
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. (laughs) It provides this space to build real human relationships and to have the time to have these conversations that aren't super scheduled. But do you have any final thoughts for the listeners before we close this session?
1: i would probably end with a bit of David Fleming. And the entry that springs to mind for me is... Implicature, which reads, the presence of a subtext, another meaning, which makes a statement not quite as simple or as innocent as it looks. Examples, what did you think of the singer? Well, I liked her dress. Or, we are tackling the problem of global warming. There is nothing wrong with the statement itself here, but it implies that we are on the way to solving the problem. It may also be taken to imply that we can do the job on our own. It sounds reassuring but it may be telling you that the efforts to tackle global warming are not having much success. The philosopher Paul Grice, who coined the word implicature, pointed out that it is commonplace in conversation and that it comes in many forms. Given its potential to mislead, he argued for a code of good conduct in conversation, which he called the cooperative principle. Be as informative as required, but no more. Do not say things which you believe to be false or for which you have no evidence. Be relevant Avoid obscurity and ambiguity, be brief and orderly, except when you're not. Lean logic advocates asides, long-windedness if it comes with a story, frank untruths if there is a reasonable chance that the other person can untangle the irony, broken logic if it reflects the difficulty of explaining things which break your heart or are hard to understand. It does not share the modest self-restraint which we find in Psalm 131, I do not exercise myself in great matters which are too high for me. Lean Logic finds that when dealing with great matters, it can, from time to time, be a good thing if there are cracks and faults in the argument, for the repair of which help is invited. It is a reminder that a conversation is a cooperative affair, not just a series of beautifully manicured statements. I just love that there's a dictionary (laughs) which contains the, the... advocacy for conversation over beautifully manicured statement and that seems that seems a very opposite place for us to to end what we were just reflecting upon
0: and i'm really glad that you read that because in my personal life i'm very much a storyteller who is long-winded and will drop threads and pick up others and my friends know just to hold on for the ride because we will get somewhere but we don't know where it's going to be
1: yeah i can see why you like lean logic
0: yeah i really do and it's like an offline Wikipedia for creating a regenerative future with the way that one word can lead you to a next because of the asterisks in the text that tell you that this word is defined elsewhere, as well as each of the entries having references at the end for other pieces within the book that you might be interested in that weren't necessarily used or defined within that entry.
1: One of the reviewers said that David Fleming's not necessarily convinced that the internet will survive far into the future, but... She wasn't so worried about that anymore because she had lean logic.
0: <laughs> and as I said in our first conversation, I think we have six volumes between Mollison's Designer's Manual, Holmgren's Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, and then Surviving the Future, Lean Logic, the Transition Handbook, and the Transition Timeline to provide us with a really core area that we can study in order to prepare ourselves then for the skills that we need for whatever the future brings to us.
1: Not a bad grounding, I would say.
0: And that was Sean Chamberlain, editor of Lean Logic and Surviving the Future, as well as the author of the transition timeline. You can find out more about him at his site, darkoptimism.org. In the show notes, I've also included links to Chelsea Green Publishing, where you can pick up a copy of Surviving the Future or Lean Logic. What I like about this conversation with Sean is... That idea of dark optimism, and all the choices that he's making in order to live his life in a particular way, are realistic to the situation that we currently find ourselves in. Every day, there's more news about what the future is really likely to be like with climate change and the shift in national and international politics in a variety of countries. The world is rapidly changing. And there's no way to know what the future will hold. But if we keep pushing on, we can make a difference in our own lives and those of the people who we care about. Because the only way we're really going to do this is with each other. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.